be with you all today and fun to be able to celebrate Advent together. Lonnie and I had the, my, my wife Lonnie, if you haven't met us before, uh, Lonnie and I had the chance a couple weeks ago uh, to actually go to Halifax uh, for a bit of a weekend getaway. I had some meetings there on Monday and Tuesday, so we flew down for the weekend and had just a nice getaway together as a couple. Uh, one of the most significant things that we did when we were actually in Halifax was to visit the Immigration Museum. Halifax has this fantastic immigration museum at Pier 21. Uh, the museum is actually built in kind of this huge warehouse uh, that once was the first step on Canadian soil uh, for nearly a million immigrants between the, between the years of 1928 and 1971 that were coming to Canada, including some members of my family and Lonnie's family. In the years following World War II, uh, my relatives, uh, my Dutch grandparents, actually arrived by boat in Quebec City before heading on to Brighton, Ontario, where they would start a rather large family. Uh, their English was weak, uh, and in the years that, that I knew them growing up, we didn't have a particularly close relationship, and unfortunately, I didn't really get to hear a lot of their story. So it was fun to actually be at the Immigration Museum, and one of the things that you can do there is you can actually go... Uh, to, this, uh, to this one area in the museum where they will actually look up the records of people who have come over. So we were able to look up the records of my family that came over and kind of find out kind of what boat they came over on, what year they came over, what they had with them and things like that. It was a fascinating experience to actually begin to reflect on kind of one part of my family's story in the last number of years. In visiting the museum and hearing their story a little bit and hearing the stories of of many immigrants who came in that season, I, I gained a new respect, new understanding for, for their choice to leave a, a war-ravaged Holland to forge a future for their family in a new country. It was fascinating, actually, at the museum to reflect on the journey of immigrants from, from kind of all, all countries around the world who would come to Canada at great cost to themselves in the hopes of forging a new life for their families. For some of us here today, that journey took place generations ago. For others here, perhaps during your childhood. And, and for some, perhaps it's a journey that's taken place in the last couple of months, the last couple of years. And for many of us, coming to Canada represented a hope of, of providing a, a future for their children. They knew that their lives would be difficult, the prospects maybe not as abundant initially, but that their children would benefit from the opportunities that they wouldn't be able to find in their home country. For others, coming to Canada maybe represented a flight from danger, uncertainty. And arriving at Pier 21 as refugees, they were escaping perhaps persecution for their faith, for their ethnicity or culture, or for their beliefs. For others, coming to Canada represented a, a hope of a, a life lived in, in, a, in the beauty of diversity, where their ethnicity could actually form part of a, a cultural mosaic rather than being a limiting factor in their economic or, or social advancement. For others, you've come here pursuing an education that maybe represented a kind of intellectual and academic flourishing that might be limited otherwise in your home country. For every person coming to Canada, there is this instinctive, reflexive reaching out towards a greater picture of human flourishing a hope of a better life, right? We recognize, they recognize that there's a greater life to be grasped perhaps than what they were, what they were experiencing and they reached out to lay hold of more. This longing, this instinct to reach out for flourishing I think is actually at the heart of what we celebrate in Advent. The very word Advent actually kind of means before. It means you're on the cusp of something new, right? 
It reminds us that we live in a time of, of before, anticipating a life that might be better after. For my grandparents, they lived in the before of their hoped-for life in Canada as they boarded a creaky boat that had been repurposed from a comfort cruiser to being something that was meant to simply hold as many immigrants as possible, making the trip from Holland over to Canada. But they lived in hope of a new life. And that's what Advent is. It's longing for a better future. As we talked about with the candle, a longing for peace. Advent is the recognition that we live caught between two realities and that we long for the new to fully arrive. One of the things that I appreciate about the Advent season is that I find myself once again invited to inhabit the true story of the world because Advent reminds me that as good as life is right now, there's better yet to come. But Advent also reminds me that as hard as life is right now, there's better yet to come. Advent, which, which sometimes feels synonymous with Christmas, actually refers to the lead up to Christmas, right? Christmas properly, the Christmas season properly actually begins on Christmas Day, on, on December 25th. That's the first day of Christmas. It's not actually October 31st or November 1st, but the first day of Christmas is actually, Christmas is a relatively short season. Uh, it's kind of Christmas Day onward. But Advent is actually the four weeks leading up to Christmas. In our world where Christmas has kind of consumed Advent, we wind up with five, six weeks of, of happy songs leading up to Christmas. But, but actually, Advent gives us something different. Maybe you noticed when we sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it doesn't feel like a very happy song, does it? It kind of has a bit of a haunting tune to it, and it's kind of a, it's a song of, of yearning, of longing, of of hoping, of looking forward, of looking towards some kind of flourishing. Advent, as the, the lead-up to Christmas, is actually meant to whet our appetites for Christmas by reminding us that the first Christmas was preceded by 400 years of prophetic silence. 400 years where God's people called out for rescue and didn't get the rescue that they had hoped for. It reminds us that Advent was preceded, or Christmas was preceded by thousands of years of people longing for a Messiah. It's a season that's meant to kindle within us a longing for Christmas, a longing for the birth of Christ. And as people who live in the time after the birth of Christ, a longing for his return and the fullness of his kingdom. So today I want to lead us to reflect on, on one of these themes of Advent, the theme of peace. And as we begin to reflect on peace, I want to do so not by jumping to the, to the celebration of Jesus as our peace, although we're going to get there, I promise, but I want to actually start by actually reflecting on the spaces where we long for peace still, the spaces where perhaps in our life today, we're not experiencing the fullness of God's peace, where in our world, we're not experiencing the fullness of God's peace. And as we do this, we do this from our various perspectives, our various lives, and we do this as part of a global church as well. And it's good for us to stop and reflect on the fact that where we might be experiencing peace today, others may not be experiencing it right now. And we call out as a global community, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So as we engage in the season of Advent, we don't celebrate Advent, we engage in the season of Advent, we do so by actually choosing to sit in our longing for change, 
for new because it's in the midst of the darkness of longing that the bright light of Christ begins to shine and become something that we can actually look forward to with hope. I want to start a reflection by taking you to a, to a well-known messianic passage, a Bible passage written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus that scholars really believe point to, to, to truths about his birth. And as we read this passage, I want you to notice the movement back and forth between darkness and light, hope and despair, the place where peace and lack of peace is contrasted. And as we do that, why don't we just pause and pray? So Father, we pray, as we've gathered here, we pray that you would open our ears to hear your word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would want to say through your scriptures today. And we pray this in the name of your son. Amen. So Isaiah 9, starting in verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I want to point out a couple of things from this passage, but before diving into the passage itself, I want to think about a couple of, the, couple of questions about context that may help us actually understand what's happening. These words of hope, this prophecy of hope, is being penned by people who are struggling under oppression. In fact, we know that the story of Israel from, the writing, you know, uh, from this writing until the time of Jesus was marked by oppression, injustice, conquering armies ruling over them. The bright light that's promised shines because of the darkness that they're actually facing. Generally speaking, this is actually the social location in which most of the Old Testament was actually written, enslaved, captive people. And if we're not careful, it makes it difficult for us as, as free, peace-loving people in the 21st century to truly enter into the text, the text that we're reading it could be argued, actually, that the people in our world today who are experiencing suffering and injustice and oppression and marginalization and poverty may be better suited to understand the context or the perspective of those to whom these first prophecies were actually addressed. Because they know what it is to persevere and trust in God when rescue isn't necessarily on the immediate horizon. In the text, we see this, this movement between two things, like I said. People walking in darkness who see a great light. We've got 
people who are oppressed, who are now experiencing an enlarged nation. We've got a yoke that burdens them that gets shattered, the rod of the oppressor that gets broken. We've got garments of war that are burned because they're no longer need, needed. We've got a government that is without end, which, I mean, maybe doesn't all sound all that inspiring, an endless government, but, but think about what that means when you're in the context of, of having your kings deposed over and over again, that you would actually have a government that you can trust, that would actually provide for you, that would actually care for you, that there would be stability that would be represented by that. We've got peace, real and lasting peace. And if this text is new to you, if you haven't heard this before, you need to know that the people of Israel held up these words, for, us to, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They would have held up these words as being in reference to a promised Messiah, to a promised rescuer, one who would come and rescue and as modern-day followers of Jesus, we see this as a beautiful description of Jesus, that all of these titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, actually find their fullest expression in the person and work of Jesus. And here's what I want to argue from the text, really simply, that the prophet is actually saying that Jesus is going to come to establish a true and lasting peace, and all the examples that he gives are just pictures of what it means to experience a true and lasting peace. He's telling us what that peace should actually look like. So then the first question that we ought to ask when we approach this text is, what is real peace? What does peace actually mean? It's important in this passage to note that while peace includes the absence of war, it certainly seems to mean more than that. Is a broader definition of peace. It's the space to grow. It's freedom from oppression. It's hope for a future free of conflict. It's the stability of good government. It's fairness and justice. And the word in Hebrew that we translate for peace is, of course, the word shalom. So then what does shalom actually mean? Because peace, I think we have a sense of it. We think about peace as the absence of conflict, but then what does shalom actually mean? Tim Keller says it this way. He says, Shalom is the, the webbing together of God and man with all creation to create universal flourishing and wholeness. In Psalm 102, God has made the world like a garment with billions of entities interwoven to make up the beauty of all that is created. Sin has come in and torn a hole in the fabric. God created all things in a beautiful, harmonious, interdependent, knitted, webbed relationship to one another just as rightly related physical elements form a cosmos or tapestry, so rightly related human beings form a community. The interwovenness is what the Bible calls shalom or harmonious peace. Shalom means complete reconciliation, the state, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. So in the biblical language, if you want to understand what shalom is, we can start by saying what shalom isn't. So if I threw a thousand threads here and I just unrolled all this wool into a nice pile on the stage, we would rightly understand that it's not fabric, right? It's just a pile of wool. It's not related to, one piece is not related to another piece. There's no good that it does. It's just a mess that I guess I'm gonna to have to clean up at some point when I'm done this talk, right? 
But, but that's all it is. It's nothing significant. It's actually just a, a pile of wool. But if we contrast that, if we contrast that to, to what happens when we actually begin to, to weave the wool together, we wind up with, with something quite different, right? We wind up with a, with a blanket that actually is quite, quite strong. It's warm. It actually represents not just wool that's piled up, but wool that's actually been woven together in and around and through every other piece. And the more interdependent the wool becomes with the other pieces of wool, the more beautiful they are. The more interwoven they are, the stronger and warmer they are. And what he's saying is that God has made the world with billions of entities, but he didn't intend them to be just an an aggregation of things, a pile of loosely related things. But actually, God created a world and God created relationships that are actually meant to be deeply woven together in interdependence. And that in that interdependence, there's a beauty and a strength and a warmth and a transformation that actually takes place. We can think about it even just in terms of our community, right? Maybe one of the things that we experienced during COVID was the sense that we had ceased in some ways to be a community. We ceased to be able to relate to each other in a way that was positive or helpful. And perhaps we began to feel a little bit like this. We were a community in many ways in in name only, right? It was hard to figure out how do we actually relate to one another. And when we look at communities, we recognize that a community isn't simply the people who live in a geographic area, that's not a community. Or the people that share a building together, that's not a community. But it's actually the network, the woven together network of relationships that actually begins to form a community. And that was the beauty that we also saw during COVID, right? Was that despite the challenges that it made for us to actually come together, to be woven together, that we actually saw community prevail, that we actually saw the connections between one another prevail in ways that allowed us to actually meet the needs of one another in significant ways. So what is shalom? Cornelius Platinga, an American theologian, puts it this way. He says, they dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would straighten out. The foolish would be made wise and the wise would be made humble. They dreamed of a time when deserts would bloom, the mountains would run with wine and people would stop weeping and be able to sleep without a weapon under their pillow. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. A lamb could lie down with a wolf because the wolf had lost its appetite. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood, and all nature and all humans would look to God, lean toward God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from women in the streets and men at sea. So when we talk about shalom, we're talking about more than just peace. We're talking about a rightly ordered world where the relationships between each other, the relationships between us and our work, us and creation, and us and God ultimately work together to form a beautiful tapestry, something profound and beautiful. In the scriptures, we actually get two powerful pictures of shalom, of what this is actually meant to be. On the one hand, we have shalom pictured in, in the way that, uh, in Genesis 2, right? Early on in creation, before the fall, we've got this picture of Adam and Eve relating well to one another, Adam and Eve relating well to the work that God's given them to do in the garden, and Adam and Eve relating well to God. We've got this 
picture of wholeness that gets destroyed. But we also get it in, in, in the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant to be the, this little picture of what shalom actually is. Because on the Sabbath, we're meant to put everything down. And if you actually, if you think about what happens on Sabbath, the picture is that a family would gather around a table, they would cease from their work, they would remember God together, they would celebrate the goodness of what they had accomplished in the week and trusting in God's provision while they paused from pursuing it. Now, what's interesting is that on Sabbath, of course, you pray, but one of the things that you don't do on Sabbath is actually pray prayers of petition. You actually rest from asking God for something because the picture that you get on the Sabbath is that actually life is, you're, you're, you're experiencing something of completeness. You lay your needs aside and actually acknowledge the, the completeness of what God has done. So Sabbath winds up being this little picture in the scriptures of what shalom, what, what peace, what a rightly ordered life actually looks like. So, so what is peace? What is shalom? It's the kind of flourishing that happens when humanity, God, and creation is in right relationship. It's the way that we were created to operate before the fall. And actually in the fall in Genesis 3, you actually see a, a systematic breakdown, a, a picture of everything that breaks down because of sin. The first thing that you see is actually the, the relationship between God and humanity breaking down, right? Genesis 3 verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, Adam and Eve, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And the first picture that you get is that the relationship, this right relationship between God and humanity is broken, and humanity feels the need to hide. The, the second breakdown that we see in the garden is the breakdown between Adam and Eve themselves, this communal relationship. God responds, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And this is bad. The man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So we've got this relational breakdown that now the, the relationship with God is broken and then it begins to spread into the relationship between them and suddenly there's blaming and suspicion that takes place. And there's a breakdown in that relationship. But then the fruit of it is that actually it says that God curses the earth. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You'll eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you'll, you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. And we've got this picture of a broken relationship between humanity and the created world and the work that they're gonna do. The work that they're gonna do is hard it's by, their, by the sweat of their brow that they're going to survive, and eventually they're actually going to die. So these three pieces represent the brokenness that we see in our world that represents the undoing of shalom. It represents the spaces where we live more like this than, than like the blanket, in right relationship with one another, with God, and with our world. 
Now, it's important that we get our understanding of peace right, because there are all kinds of ways that we can miss how significant the peace is that Isaiah is describing and that Jesus actually inaugurates for us. Because the people to whom Jesus came were actually living in a time of of peace. It was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the Roman peace. So they lived in this 200-year period during the from about 27 years before the birth of Jesus. For 200 years, there was the Pax Romana, this time of, of supposed peace, but it was, a, it was a false peace because it was a peace that was upheld by the point of the sword. It was a peace for some, but not for others. It was a declared peace, but it wasn't actually a real peace because the majority of people did not experience peace. They experienced oppression. They experienced marginalization. And in our world today, dare I say in our lives today, there are also those kinds of false peace, those tentative peace agreements, where rather than than settling for lives that are woven together, marked by love for God and love for neighbor, we settle for a an unstated agreement to simply tolerate or overlook differences. It falls short of actually loving one another. Perhaps we see in our, in our world or in our neighborhood places of marginalization and suffering, but we think to ourselves, because it doesn't affect me, it doesn't affect my peace. But that kind of thinking really reflects more of this, right? This sense that I am an independent person who doesn't need to be concerned about the needs of others. And this isn't the kind of shalom that Jesus actually came to bring in. As Christians, we've begun to taste the first fruits of the true shalom, but we're still living in the in-between as well. We still feel the brokenness of the fall, right? even as we begin to taste the renewal of all things in Christ. If our picture of peace or shalom is like a a well-woven blanket, where do you sense today the unraveling, the worn patches, maybe the holes in the blanket, the places where there's anything but peace or restoration? of the three elements that we've talked about, of this kind of, this vertical, this kind of spiritual relationship, this horizontal, this kind of interpersonal or community relationship, or or the relationship between us and the world, the work that we do, creation, in those three spheres, which resonates most with you in this season? In which of those spheres do you most long for the kind of peace or restoration of shalom that Jesus has come to bring? Perhaps in this season you're wrestling deeply with the effects of sin in your own life and your heart longs for reconciliation with God, the peace that comes from knowing that God doesn't count your sins against you and that he is in fact making all things new, even you. Perhaps you're in a season where God feels distant and the cry of your heart is, come quickly, Lord Jesus, draw close to me. Perhaps you're in a season where you're longing for the reconciliation 
in relationships with people who are close to you, where maybe you've settled for a, a Pax Romana, a false peace with the people that you're meant to love. This too is part of the peace that Jesus came to initiate. Because of thinking about this this week, I was reflecting on some relationships in my life that just feel really complicated right now. Maybe, maybe you feel some of this. I feel like as we're heading into Christmas and heading into spending time with family, there are some relationships that just feel a little bit complicated and I realize I've settled for a, a Pax Romana with some members of my own family because of some of what we've walked through together in the last number of years. And there's a longing in my heart that there would actually be real reconciliation, that, that we would move beyond tolerating sitting together for a meal to truly loving one another. Or perhaps you're grieving the effects of sin in our world and the brokenness that comes through greed or an overconsumption of resources or systematic poverty or systemic poverty or a, or a frustrating or exploitative work environment. When Lonnie and I visited the Immigration Museum, um, it was painfully obvious that challenging though it was for my Dutch ancestors, immigrating to Canada, it was far more difficult for other ethnicities and other cultures who simply weren't welcomed or who faced discrimination from an unjust system. And I walked away thinking, oh, this feels heavy, Lord, that there are some people who have been excluded. So as we think about peace, I actually just want to pause for a minute and ask you to reflect. Where in your life today do you long for shalom to be restored? And I'm just going to pause for a minute and let you think about that. Those things that come to mind, those are the things that Jesus has actually come to repair. And when we call him the Prince of Peace, we're not just talking about kind of one element of peace, but as the Christmas carol tells us, joy to the world, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He's come to repair the fabric of our flourishing wherever there are tears in it wherever it has become threadbare, whether it's the mess of community or relationships or abuses of power or corrupt governments or corporations, the abuses of the created order that he's made or the enmity between God and humanity, we see all of these things being undone. Advent is a season of longing, but as we wait in the, in the before we wait as those with, with deep hope, right? And even as we bring those things to Jesus again today and say, Jesus, these things feel heavy. These feel like places where I'm not sure how the help is going to come or what it looks like to, to repair or restore these things. We do so with deep hope because we've tasted the first fruits of Christ's rule of peace. So then what does it mean for us to, to wait with a deep sense of hope? It means that in the busyness of preparing for Christmas, we choose to pay attention to the places where the fabric is frayed, where human flourishing feels far off. And can I give you that as a challenge? Christmas gets busy and there's so many things that we need to do. And yet in the midst of the, in the lead up to Christmas, I think it's appropriate for us to actually stop and reflect on the spaces where we look around and say, Lord, that's not right. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we need your help. 
to repair that. Second, it means that we allow the experience of of frayed fabric to remind us that we need God to intervene and we join in the voices of those who have come before us in actually calling out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It means we follow the invitation of Jesus to actually do the work of peace. Jesus calls us to actually be peacemakers, to be weavers of shalom, to be the people who pick up the threads and actually begin to make it back into something whole that this is actually part of the calling that he's given us to be peacemakers. And perhaps again today, there are ways as we've opened the scriptures and as we've reflected together that you've sensed a renewed calling to be a peacemaker in the world, to, to step into a space where you feel like there's not peace, to actually begin to restore that shalom. So I'm gonna invite Chris up to, to lead us in a song and we wanna continue in this theme of actually reflecting and preparing our hearts for Christmas because the work of preparing our hearts for Christmas of being in Advent is actually recognizing the spaces where we desperately need Jesus to come and make all things new. And as we do so, I wanna leave you with this blessing. Let the peace of Christ dwell richly in your hearts so that you might be weavers of shalom and witnesses to the Prince of Peace. May our longing in the season of Advent make the arrival of Christmas that much brighter and sweeter.